Amen. You can be seated. So we've been in the midst of this Healthy Church series for really, this is going on week number 22. We've spent a lot of time talking about what it looks like to be a healthy church, what it looks like to to, to function together as a church in the midst of a, a world that is not necessarily accepting or directly just always appreciative of us, and is oftentimes will bring some level of struggle against us. And so we've been working through the letter of 1 Peter for that. And we came last week in 1 Peter to chapter 4, or I'm sorry, chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, and that deals heavily with the views of eldership or pastoring, uh, what the pastor's job is to do. And this week, rather than move on to the next passage, I felt as long as we're here and considering what it looks like to be a healthy church, we didn't just need to understand the role of a pastor, but we need to understand what it is in the biblical perspective and the biblical design for church leadership and structure. And so this week we're going to take kind of an aside and we're going to step out of the letter of 1 Peter, still under the understanding or still under the scope of a healthy church series, but consider what it is, the second office of leadership in the church, the deacon. Uh, in, In fact, there's a reality that this is just as important for us as understanding the role of a pastor. For example, last week I I started talking to you about pastors, and I I challenged the church not to just switch off, to think, oh, well, this isn't for me because I'm not a pastor, and I'm not going to be a pastor, so it's really not for me. But the reality is is that to be a healthy church, to to live together as a healthy church in the midst of, of this world, we need to know as a church not just that there is a pastor, but really know what the Bible calls that pastor to do so that we don't put unhealthy expectations or our own desires on that person, and when they let us down for our desires, then we begin to get upset with them because they're not living up to our own expectations, even if the Scripture never called them to that. We need to know that. We, the, the, the whole church needs to know that. The pastors needed to know that. And you, as a church, needed to hear your pastors be challenged from the Word of God and see them submit under its authority. Well, today, as we talk about deacons, there is a reality that it is just as misunderstood in our culture as the the role of a pastor. We need to take some time. If we're going to maintain health and grow in health in the midst of this world, we need to take some time and consider what it looks like to have a church that's made up of a leadership structure, structure of elders, pastors, and deacons. The truth is this, that maybe you have experienced some of the some of the church structures that are built extra biblically, I would say. For example, one very common one is a pastor-led church, a single pastor with a board of deacons. And what happens in that in that church government or in that church leadership is that the pastor really kind of sets the, the vision, sets the goals, and sets the direction of the church, and then draws the deacons around himself. And they begin to offer spiritual oversight and spiritual uh, direction for the church. And as you'll see today, that's not at all what the deacons were established to do. That's not what they were intended to do. In fact, you're asking people who haven't been qualified to act as pastors, you're asking them to act outside of their qualification. That's completely unfair to them, and it's completely unfair to the church. It's not right for the church. It's not good for the church. That would be like asking Donald Trump to come in and pastor your church. Yeah, you get it. He can't even name a favorite Bible verse. You don't want to do that. It's not a good idea, right? But that's what's happening. Now, don't hear me saying, don't hear me saying that, that God doesn't work in the midst of that. He's doing work in churches across America that, that have that type of structure. And for many of you, that's all you've ever known. 
And you've never questioned it. You never looked to the scripture. It's just what you were taught and it's what you accepted. And, and hey, we're all loving Jesus and so we can get along. My conviction is we can do better than that. We can, be, we, we can do better than just getting along. We can, as a people of God, live under the biblical authority, of, uh, the, the, the scriptural authority. We can thrive under that. And while it will be difficult at times, while there will be suffering at times, while there will be sacrifice at times, it is truly the best for us. And there's another side of this misuse or misunderstanding of deacons is, is that in many cases, churches will rename them. They'll have ministry team leaders or they'll have, have um, uh, just designations that aren't found anywhere in Scripture. And, and the people function as deacons, but they've got no biblical, they've got no biblical connection. So they don't understand the, the weight that comes to them from God. They don't understand the responsibility that's been given to them through the Scripture and by the power of Christ in the gospel. And so is, as these people function, they, they purely look cons, and, and consider completely just their physical functioning in, in, in the church, and, and it's missing it. It's missing the depth and the veracity of what the diaconate is supposed to be about. It's missing the connection to what God intended for His people through them. So we, we recognize the importance of the role of deacon. Now, to be honest, and, and you know this if you're a member here, if you're visiting, I want to make sure that you understand. This, that, that second place, that second position, that second misunderstanding or misappropriation of the diaconate, that's where we've been as a church. It wasn't intentional. It wasn't like, oh, we set out to just to just do this. But we have installed leaders who are functioning as deacons, but we've never qualified them or equipped them or even put them in front of the church and installed them publicly and affirmed their leadership in the church. And we've just asked them to serve roles. Now, again, I said it wasn't intentional. Things have happened, and, and, and I'm telling you right now, the pastors needed help. We are, we are desperately incompetent people, just to be fair. That's not totally true, I mean, but we have our weaknesses, and we needed help. So we asked for help, and, and, and help was given, but we've not been completely fair to those doing it. And so, so here's part of why it was important that we stop and, and add this to our Healthy Church series where we're at now, even though Peter didn't deal with it in his letter. We are days away from calling those who are serving in roles that should be served in as deacons, as people with, biblical, uh, with a biblical connection. We're days away from making connection with them and calling them into this training and equipping that then we can put them in front of the church and say, these are your deacons who are here to serve your needs. We need to do this. And if we are going to continue to grow in our health, this is a vital step for our church. And so today, we're going we're gonna to take this time, we're going to work through this, even though, even though it does take us out of the letter of 1 Peter, because he doesn't deal with them officially in the sense that he does with elders. And we're going to take a look at, at what I believe is at least the foundation of deacons in the church. I, I, don't, I don't think it's ultimately the first deacons, or I, I think it begins to give us an insight into what deacons would be. We're going to be in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. So let's just dive right in. We'll read the verses, 
And then, and then we'll just look and see what the Lord has for us. Acts 6, we begin reading in verse 1, and I'll read through verse 7. It says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples. The full number of the disciples is a big deal. It's not right, they say, that we should give up the preaching, up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is a powerful moment in the life of the church. Huge things going on. Let me just set the stage for you. We, we have to see, I mean, you, you have to see, you have to get it to, to really appreciate what, what they're faced with in this moment. I mean, Peter preaches the very first gospel message. It's not the first time that the kingdom had been preached. It's not the first time that a Messiah had been preached. It's not the first time that even hope in salvation had been preached. But he has the honor of standing and being the first person, not just to preach of a coming Savior, but to preach of a Savior who had come and who had died and who had risen and now ascended and they had been sent under to proclaim his goodness. He had the honor of preaching that message and it was Holy Spirit empowered is moving on people and as they're hearing it in their own language, 3,000 people in moments. I mean, the church goes from 120 to 3,000 people being added just like that. Now, I don't know if you can grasp the logistical nightmare that that builds in. I mean, here you've got 12 apostles, and one of them is brand new. He's just been added. So 11, 11 somewhat seasoned apostles responsible to lead and serve this church. But the growth doesn't stop. You flip over to Acts chapter 4 and you find out that in one sitting, another 5,000 were added, and that's just the men. It could be that it grew from 3,000 to 5,000, but I think in the language it is another 5,000 men, not counting the households and the women that belong. It's just counting the men. Another 5,000 people. So if you just count that number along with the 3,000 added, that's 8,000. But if you add the households in, you're likely talking somewhere in the realm of, of fifteen to 20,000 people. It doesn't stop there, though. In fact, you turn over to Acts chapter 5, verse 14, and this is what it says. It says that the, and, 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 and more than ever, that means more than before, right? More than what was happening before. More than ever, believers were added to the Lord. So here's what I think is happening. Like the rate of growth is increasing. 
if you were to mark it out on a graph, it goes from it goes from this this gradual, which I don't think 120 to 3,000 is gradual, but but at some point, right, it, it doesn't just go zero or 120 to 3,000. It goes 120 to 3,000 to to 8,000, maybe 15,000, and then it starts to spike. And, and so here's what happens: instead of counting a number, they say, and multitudes. I think, it's my theory, I can't prove this because these people are dead and I can't talk to them, right? So, it's my theory that the number began to increase so rapidly that they couldn't keep up a count anymore. And so, it says in verse 14, chapter 5, verse 14, that multitudes were being added of both men and women. Some estimates are talking like 20,000, 30,000 people in the church by this point. And there's 12 apostles, and one's brand new. I'm just going to tell you, I'd be fumbling around trying to figure out what was going on. I'd be lucky to be able to see my, you know, I, I don't know if I'd know the difference between my head and a hole in the ground at that point. I, I am telling you, I think that this was a, an amazing amount of pressure. But there's another thread. It wasn't, just the, it wasn't just the rapid rate of growth that was going on. There's another thread that needs to be demonstrated through this because as the church is birthed in Acts chapter 2, there's this moment that, that they, we get a glimpse of what the new life in Christ looked like. In, verses, in chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, it gives us a picture of them devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, devoting themselves to the fellowship, not to the events of the church, but to the people of the church, to devoting to the breaking of bread and of prayer. So these people were coming together. They were gathering in homes. They were gathering in the temple. They were living life together, right? Now, the apostles probably weren't at all of those events or all of those gatherings, but they were committed to one another. And they were so committed to one another that they actually began to sell things so that they could give money to one another. And what that established was this great uh, mercy ministry in the church. And I don't know that it happened in chapter 2, but by chapter 4, we begin to see that all of those people selling stuff, the, the number is so great, they're, they're all selling stuff, and they're bringing that stuff to the apostles. They're bringing the proceeds. They're bringing the, the, the proceeds to the apostles, putting it at their feet and to distribute as any had need. So you have these apostles who... On day one at Pentecost, you know, 3,000 people come to believe and their eyes go probably go crossways and they don't know what to do next. So they're praying and, and, and the church begins to serve one another and love one another. Well, as that begins to refine a little bit, all of these people then become to bring the stuff to the apostles. And now the apostles have this responsibility of, 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 of upwards of 15, 20, maybe 30,000 people and they're supposed to make sure that all of those needs are met. And, and it was functioning in such a way that if you read in chapter 4, it says that there were no needs among them. So it was happening. Life was happening. The church was functioning. God's mercy was being experienced in tangible ways. And the, and the apostles were teaching. But that wasn't going to last for very long. So here, here we come to Acts chapter 6. And the apostles are faced with this huge dilemma. Holy Spirit work going on. I mean, stuff that we would just fall over if we saw. 
It's happening all around them. So much power and provision and, and, and participation by God going on that, that people, people were laying down their, their, uh, their handkerchiefs so that the shadow of an apostle would hit it and they would take that same handkerchief and they'd go and put it on the sick people that they knew and those people would be healed. I mean, that's just how much power was flowing through them. It's crazy stuff. And in the midst of that, right in the middle of it, in the days when the disciples were increasing in number, in the days when, when the, when the uh, Holy Spirit was extending the reach and the influence of the gospel in powerful ways, a complaint. Something was wrong. Church life got messy. It wasn't all fun and games anymore. They were hurting. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. The apostles were faced with this major dilemma, and it was driven between racial lines. It's a big deal. Could even sound familiar a little bit. See, as, as anything grows, as, as anything changes, there's going to be growing pains felt. There's going to be tensions that we experience. I mean, you, you don't plant a tomato plant and then just walk away and think that it's not going to need something along the way. Well, I might because I don't farm, and I, I, I wouldn't know this if I hadn't looked it up on the Internet. <laughs> right? You need a tomato cage or a trellis or, or, or a stake of some sort that it can be tied to you. Otherwise, your tomatoes end up in the dirt and they rot before you get to enjoy them. You see, as things grow, things change. And as those things change, there needs to be, there needs to be systems and structure that are put into place and, and decisions need to be made to strengthen what's going on. Truth is, life together had gotten messy for them. Here's the thing. We don't know. We don't know if this was an intentional thing. It's, it's, there's a racial divide, right? We don't know if there was an intent to be more gracious with the Hebrew Christian widows than the Greek uh, uh, Christian widows. We, we, we don't know whether it was even real or not. It could simply be a perspective. It, and it, it, it may not have really been happening. It could have been their perception, and perception is reality. I mean, when you think you're the one being gypped, it's hard to convince you otherwise, right? I mean, it could just have been a perception. It, it, it could have, have been something selfish and something, something driven from the sin nature that was driving this complaint. But the apostles, they saw the dilemma. What they didn't do was get into the problem and, and, and tell the widows, suck it up. Just suck it up. Yeah, that, was, that was my family motto. I didn't know this was my family motto while the boys were growing up. Well, I did eventually, but, but at first I didn't. 
But my oldest one, Cameron, went to school, and one of his, it was in elementary school, uh, he went to school, and he, his assignment was to draw a family crest, and so he draws this shield, and there's like ribbon banner stuff blowing off of it, and he colors it, and then there's a statement in the middle of the shield, and he brought it home, and it said, suck it up, sissy. <laughs> I was like, wow, might have gone to that one just a few too many times. First time they, they, they bought me my first iPad. They, my, my wife knew how much I, I longed for an iPad and the usefulness it would be to me. And they bought me an iPad. And I got it and I flipped it over. And on the back, it said, suck it up, sissy, engraved on the back. And so, so I knew by this point, you know, I was like, well, yeah, I use that too many times. They didn't do that. They, they didn't go to those widows and say, suck it up, sissy. You're getting something. Appreciate it. They didn't ignore the problem. It's not like they heard of the complaining and just ignored it as if it wasn't really that big a deal. They didn't deny the problem as if it was not an issue. They understood the pain point. They understood the challenge that they were faced with. They, they understood that regardless of what was really going on, something needed to be done. Something needed to happen. And so they determined to set what was wrong Right. They determined to, to go a direction to set things right. And here's the thing. Their dilemma was not about how to get food or money to more people. It goes deeper than that. It's never just about what we see on the surface. Certainly, there was a need to ensure that the, 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 the widows were being treated fairly. But the, the, the dilemma they dealt with went much deeper. There was... The, the, the dilemma was this, that there was two vital components of ministry to accomplish. And one was failing. One was falling apart. The demand was too high. There's a spiritual component of, of ministry that must happen. There's a spiritual component, a spiritual oversight, a spiritual serving and leading that must happen. But it is not intended that we deny or neglect the practical or physical side of ministry. There is a practical component of ministry that is as vital as the spiritual component of ministry. We, we, we don't have the right in the church to say, hey, we got, we got preaching, so let's just go on and do our thing and forget about what people need. It's a misunderstanding of what we've been called to. It's a misunderstanding of what the... The, the scriptures teach us and command of believers. The dilemma was that there were two vital components of ministry to accomplish. And they were faced with this dilemma because they were asking, how could the church be served best in both? Not just how we could skate by. Like, we just want to do the bare minimum. How can we do the best? What can we do that's best? As the demands of ministry increase, as the church grows, as anything grows, change happens. And, and, and the same is true for the church. As the demands of ministry increase, we can't neglect the point of need. Need over one, one point of need or one aspect of need over another. We can't, we can't elevate spiritual need over practical need. They both work together. And for those of you that have been here, I want you to think back to what 1 Peter has been calling us to over and over and over again. 
to believe so completely the gospel of Jesus Christ that we don't just accept it and receive it and enjoy it for ourselves, but that we turn around and prioritize it for the life of the church so that we actually begin to physically, tangibly uh, uh, love one another. Love one another. Love the church. Love, love one another like we've been loved. Offer hospitality to one another. Opening up your homes to one another. In, in, in enjoying life together. Moving or, or living in such a way. And, and moving as the church in such a way in this world that our lives mesh together and become dependent upon one another. Because then he says, love one another. Offer hospitality to one another. And serve one another. That's what Peter has called us to. That's what the scripture, the breadth and and depth of scripture calls us to in light of the gospel, not to neglect one aspect of ministry over the other, but to ensure that that they begin to mesh and that the goodness and glory of God that we believe in our hearts affects us tangibly in our flesh. And the apostles saw this dilemma and they saw that something needed to happen and they knew that they couldn't neglect it, they knew they couldn't deny it, and they knew that they were going to be faced with this decision and they, the decision they made was huge I, I, I think it's probably one of the hardest decisions leaders have to make because as a leader you don't, you're not immune to insecurities you're not immune to self-defense you're not immune to the desire to make sure people understand what you you know you're, you're not immune to the to the regular the everyday struggles of, of people Unfortunately, as a leader, you actually have people that can begin to to feed some of that idolatry. And you can begin to protect that identity. And you can begin to draw everything in and make everything about you. Or you can do what the apostles did. They were mature enough. They were insightful enough. They were trusting God enough that they began to give it away. They began to recognize we cannot do this. We are not serving the church well. We need help and support. And so in their decision, they, they, they give us some principles, I think, that we can draw out that help us understand the, the functions of pastors and deacons in the church. In their decision, they established the importance of preaching and prayer. They established the importance of their role. In fact, it was so important that they couldn't that they couldn't pull away from serving tables. And when you hear that and when you read it, it can almost sound like, well, that's less than that. That's serving tables. That's no that's no thing to be done. I got a I got preaching and prayer to do. That's important stuff. They established the importance of the preaching and prayer. They established the importance of their role. But as they were doing that, they. They weren't bashing on the need to serve tables. They weren't, on, they weren't bashing on the need to make sure that these widows were taken care of. In fact, in the way that they treated the issue, in the, in the way that they made the decision, they established the importance of preaching and prayer, and they exemplified the importance of practical ministry in the church. How did they do that? They gathered the whole church. I mean, it's not like they got on Facebook groups and said, hey, come on, we're going to have a meeting at the, at the temple tomorrow. I mean, the church is maybe 15, 20... 30,000 people. I mean, even if conservative, if, you, if you're just adding the numbers up that, 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 that are in the Scripture, it's like 8,000 people. How do you gather 8,000 people when you don't have a phone to call them on? That's work. They saw how important this was. and They gathered all the disciples together. 
And then when they said, hey, find us some men to do this work, they put, they, they put qualifications to it. They put expectation on it. They didn't just say, hey, give me the scabs at the back of the room. You know, They didn't say that. They wanted the cream of the crop. They wanted the maturity. They, they, they wanted people who had a spiritual character that demonstrated that God is at work in them. They understood the importance of this role. The, the mercy ministry, the, pack, the practical ministry of the church for them was vital and important. So they established the importance of preaching and prayer in their decision. They established or exemplified the importance of practical ministry in the church. And they established roles of service within the church. The reality is, is that in their decision, in their decision, they set forth an example for for the rest of the time in the church. This is the first moment that I know of that, that, that I've found. And you, you can read it's five or six chapters. But so far as I know, from, from the time of preaching in, uh, at Pentecost and the church really taking off, there's not, not, not another moment that really exemplifies the necessity of every member of the church doing ministry. This is the first one. The very first one. And they set that example. You see, there is a reality, but we don't like to admit it. It's not the, it's not the, it's not the trait that we most uh, praise in our culture, but there is a reality that we were made to be innately dependent upon one another. We like independence, right? Like, I want people to think I got it together. I want people to know I can handle it. I got, I got big shoulders, man. I can carry, I, I, I can take care of my business. Man, you throw, our, our church is about, if everybody were to show up, if, every, if everybody we deal with, we're right around uh, between 120 and 150 people. <clears throat> you throw that many needs at me, and I can tell you, I can't carry them. But I'm freed to say that. Because the apostle set an example of the importance of every person picking up their piece of the pie and carrying it. They, they exemplified the importance of each person playing their part. There's a reality. Last week as we talked about pastors and the role that we have in the church, there's a reality that there's men in this room as members of this church. And there's maybe men in this room that aren't yet members of this church or, or, or are find, looking for finding a church or are going to be somewhere in a church that, that are going to be called to be pastors. The church needs you. But they don't need just you. They need people who are committed and concerned, not just about the spiritual well-being, and they need people who are also committed and concerned and equipped to deal with the practical needs of the church. You can't do one to the neglect of the other. Both are vital. Both are important. And so the apostles, they made this decision that set the tone for everything that would happen. And as a result, as a result, we end up hearing from in church history. I, I don't think this is the moment that deacons became deacons. I, in fact, most scholars would tell you that, that we can't prove that. And, and a lot of people point back to this time as that way. But, but he doesn't ever, he, he uses the word deacon in the Greek. He, he uses it once. And he doesn't use it as an, a title or any kind of official sense. He just talks about serving tables. So, so we can't look at this and assume this is everything deacons are. 
But we can look to the scripture, the breadth of the New Testament, where as the church continued to grow and continued to expand and systems and structure were refined and, and, and leaders were raised up, that Paul didn't just deal with the qualifications of elders, but he dealt with the qualifications of deacons. As the church was growing and expanding in Rome, you see the talk of deacons and deaconesses. So in their decision, they established what would eventually be the deacon. And, and, and not just one, but many. There's very little written about deacons in the Scripture. In fact, as I've studied this and we've sought to establish it for our church, there is a reality that there is very little. I don't, I don't know how to go less. I mean, there's something written about them. We're, we're reading some of that today. There are qualifications offered in uh, 1 Timothy. There is a place in Philippians, the opening of the letter, where the, it is used alongside elders and deacons. We, we recognize that they were an office in the church. There's a reality that there's very little written, but we can build an understanding of what they were to do as the apostles made this decision and established what would eventually be the deacon. Their, their role, their job, their function, if you will, was first to assist the pastor and elders as necessary. And you might say, well, wait a minute, you've been talking about they were supposed to serve the church. Well, yeah, they're supposed to serve the church, but where was the need first met? Because the elders couldn't do it. So as we establish deacons, it's not about, hey, let's just all, let's all be deacons, right? Let's just come and be deacons. So you'll have a few pastors, and the rest of you, if you're not a pastor, you can be a deacon. Well, in, in one sense, that's true. You're all supposed to serve the church. But in another, not all of us are intended to be pastor and deacon in the office. There, there, there's, there's pastors, deacons, and members in a church. And the call is for pastors to lead and, and, and deacons to come and assist them. Assist the mission, assist the function of the, of, of the pastors. And so they start with this, this perspective that, hey, I, I can't do this. And, and the best way I can clarify or illustrate that, I think, is, is through our ministry, uh, Kidsway. If, in fact, my wife was sent a picture this morning by Melissa Kimmins uh, six years ago, I think is what that was. And we were in a storefront at that time, and I think there was maybe seven kids in that room. Maybe, maybe, maybe seven kids in that room. And the church was about maybe the, the core group, the people who were really in that church, maybe 30 people. And we hadn't even really established our, our internal elder board. We had some oversight elders that were from the outside in giving support. But it was a much different time. Much, much different time in the life of this church. Well, as course of events went, I end up with with responsibility of oversight over Kidsway, and I can tell you, just because I've heard the complaints, <laughs> we got to a point where I was failing the kids of Kidsway. I have a desire for it. I have a vision for it. I, I, I got a direction I want us to go. But I can't make that happen. It's grown too much. It's way beyond my ability to, to manage that and preach for the church. I was faced with a decision. A am I going to be Kidsway leader or am I going to be the preaching pastor here? My, my call is to be the preaching pastor. And so we were able to 
through just as, as things have gone, we were able to see a person with interest and desire and ability. Hey, would you do this? Yes, I'll do it. And she's assisting the elders. But how is she assisting the elders? She's serving your family tangibly, physically, in real ways. And I, I can already tell you in the two, three weeks that it's been going on, you're going to be better for it. Your kids will be better for it. They won't have their pastor walking up to them telling them to suck it up. They'll have a, someone who's compassionate and concerned. Uh, I want their best. I just got a different way of getting them there. She's better for it. Your families will be better for it. So they assist the elders. They assist the pastors. They lead others in service and manage the church. When you look at this passage, I mean, you think about the numbers of people that they would have been serving. It's naive of us to think that seven people were pulling this off. It's naive to think that these seven men were the only people ever dealing with all the proceeds that came in and then distributing them to thousands of people. More likely, they were managing those resources. They were, they, they were, they were taking care of those resources and, and had groups of people that they were organizing and leading. There, there is in all likelihood a leadership component that's not expressly said there, but there is definitely a management component. The apostles had been receiving all that and distributing it. And it appears in this moment that the apostles are saying, you know what? It's not that we're not interested. Well, we can't do it all. We're going to focus on prayer and ministry of the word, and, and they're going to focus on making sure that widows are taken care of, that physical needs are met, that mercy ministries are established. And then finally, the third thing I think we see, the third role and function of this office that is established is that they serve the practical needs of the church. This is We've come back to this over and over again. We cannot deny the importance of the practical needs of Christian brothers and sisters. We cannot do it. In fact, in, in 1 John, 1 John 3.16, this is how we know what love is. Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought also lay down our lives for one another. But then he goes on to say that if we're not willing to give the cloak off our back, then how can we say that the love of God is in us? We cannot deny the practical needs of the brothers and sisters in Christ. They go one, they, they go hand in hand. They are meshed together. The role of the deacon may be subordinate to that of the elder, but it is no less vital to the well-being of the church. We need deacons that function as the Bible expresses deacons to function. And just, I, I need to I'm, take just a second to tell you this, that I, I made this point uh, last week with elders as it's a role that we unapologetically are complementarian in our view. We're, we're not... We're not arguing with other people over it. We're not trying to make a case out of it. It's just where we see the Bible to teach and what we believe uh, the Bible teaches. We're complementarian in our view, which means that, that the office of elder is male only. And, and here's the thing. In, in our culture and context, the way we do deacons, oftentimes you find it reserved male only. We believe and hold confidently that there's enough of a distinction between the exercise of spiritual authority and the leading in service. We believe confidently based on the 
on, on, on what we have in the Scripture in Romans and even in the qualifications given in 1 Timothy that women can be deacons, that we can in, enjoy the complementarian practice of male eldership and men and women deacons serving one another in leadership. If our deacons were to sit in a room and offer spiritual oversight, we wouldn't be able to do that because the Bible is clear. We believe. But because we will... In, we will install and affirm deacons in the role we believe the Bible to, to, to give them. We will join many, many churches in saying that we would love to have our women lead in service. So I can go into that in much more detail at another point. That, that little piece, if you have questions about it, I'd love to talk with you about it. I'd love to show you what I've written on it and give you the scripture that you can wrestle with. But that is where we fall. Finally, let me just close with this. So we've seen the we've seen the dilemma they were faced with. We saw the decision that they made, and we saw how that established what we would call deacons. But let's not leave here today without recognizing the effect that that had. In verse seven, it says, "And the word of God continued." To increase. What were, what were the apostles looking to focus on? Word and prayer. The word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. What if? I mean, we can't know because it didn't happen this way, and, and we really, I'm, these people are dead, so we can't talk to them, but, but what if? What if the apostles had not decided, determined that they were going to raise up leaders that could serve the practical ministries of the church, that they could focus on the preaching of the word and prayer? What if? Would we have a Luke chapter, or I'm sorry, an Acts chapter six, verse seven? I, I, would would Acts chapter six, verse eight, through uh, the end of that chapter, through it's like verse eight fifteen? Would would, would it exist? And if the church didn't blow up from that point because Stephen is martyred at the end of Acts chapter 6 and into chapter 7 as he is martyred and from his martyrdom the church is spread and as they spread they proclaim the gospel and the church finds its way into the nooks and crannies of, of, of the world and the, of, of, the, of the known uh, world at that time. Would, would it have happened? What if? What if the, the apostles had shorn up all of their identity and I'm going to serve the church, I'm going to take care of this, I'm going to do it all by myself? What if? What if these seven men never stood to lead? What if? What, what if? What if we are at a crossroads as a church? And your pastors denied the importance of the physical, tangible, practical ministry and just decided we were going to take care of everything. What if? What if we follow the example of the apostles and those who are currently leading and those who should be leading in practical ways are trained and equipped and prepared? What if? We can't force church growth. We can't make that happen. 
But when we each do our part, God's mission in the world will advance and His people will be served. And a lost world will have a view of the gospel that they desperately need to see. So that in the end, when, when all things are said and done, if they haven't believed, they will have no excuse. Because God will have shown His glory through His people. What if? What if we got busy about these things? Let's pray. Father, of course we understand we are servants, every one of us, incapable of really bearing the fruit that we all long for and desire, dependent upon you to do that. But you've given us wisdom and insight and determined that we, Father, can make a difference. We have a part to play. And so I just ask for each person in this room, each person represented, each household, each family represented, Father, that you would speak to their hearts and lead them to be the man or woman you've called them to be, to serve the church in the way you've gifted them and enabled them to serve. Always trusting. This isn't because we need to earn our place before you, but trusting because that, that it's because we've been given our place before you. Trusting that we are living every day because of the gospel, because of what you've done. It's all these things I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.